Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have made them become more real to us because we believe that helps us apply them to our lives better, and we need to, to apply them and draw power from them and get all the help we can. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have with me today my colleague and good friend, Dr. Lincoln Blumel. Uh, Lincoln is uh, in the professor in the same department I'm in, Ancient Scripture Department. He's also the head of our graduate program there. Uh, he did his undergraduate work uh, at the University of Calgary, if I'm remembering right. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, where I think he holds the distinction, of, I believe he's the only person uh, on our faculty who was uh, a starting quarterback in college, uh, but he was a quarterback there. And then he went on to do his graduate work at the University of Toronto, which is where I met him, uh, in early Christian studies and Greek and, and so on. Is that, am I getting it all right? I haven't looked little, anything up. A little stop over to England in between, but uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Time at Oxford. Uh, he was uh, got a master's in Oxford uh, and uh, then at University of Toronto. And then he went to uh oh Tulane is that right I right yeah I taught at Tulane in the classics department before I came over to the Y so yeah yeah well welcome Lincoln tell us more about yourself yeah well I guess just uh yeah professor there uh, at BYU really specialized in early Christianity um up until about the fifth century and uh in that period do a lot of work on Christianity in Egypt and do a lot with Greek and Coptic papyrology and epigraphy and so yeah. uh in fact, uh, doing some of that right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to say, well, uh, one of the ways I've gotten to know Lincoln really well is that he comes with me on my excavation quite frequently and uh, translates things. It's so fun to find it. We, we, we have some storage magazines we work in and they always want Lincoln to look at their Greek stuff and his eyes light up and he gets excited. And so he's doing the same thing right now. He's uh, speaking to us from Tokyo as he's uh, looking at some inscriptions there. So uh, the time zone has been tricky for us to figure out it's at nine at night for him and 6 a.m for me but we figured out a time that works for the two of us and i'm largely awake so uh with all of that then let's we're going to talk about first corinthians one through seven today uh so let's jump in lincoln where would you like to take us and and what's become real to you and how can we understand this better well you well, pleasure to be on here carrie and hope i can say some things will be meaningful to you and uh, those listening uh to this podcast uh, I guess I'd begin by, you know, we're into Paul's letters. And, uh, you know, when I was on your podcast a little while ago talking about Paul, I think something that's worth remembering, especially here as we get into this letter, is just kind of keeping some context in mind. And, and one of the things I'd say, you know, with this letter, as well as some other Paul's letters, but but especially this one, is to keep in mind, you know, there's a lot of, you know, timeless principles in Paul, and of course in Scripture. But as you all know, at times, you know, depending as we read ancient Scripture, some things can be a little bit more timely than timeless. Yeah. And so we then need to look for a principle behind that. And so when you read 1 Corinthians, uh, you'll be reading about some things periodically um, that are a little bit different, right? We're dealing with different culture, different customs that are not always directly applicable for our time. However, we could look for a principle um, behind them. Uh, this is really the case, certainly in chapter 7, really through 11. But you get little you know, parts of this here and there in 1 Corinthians. So I think some context is this worth keeping um, in mind? Um, again, not to diminish, there's lots of good eternal principles and stuff that's in this letter that's very relevant uh, for our time and day. But just to keep in, in context, you know, um, in perspective, I guess kind of some context with this letter. 
And, and something I want to mention here, uh, just by way, uh, again, as an introduction, we talk about this as, you know, the first epistle to the Corinthians. Yeah. It's very clear when you get to chapter five, it's actually the second letter. Yeah. Um, and so what we call, right, first Corinthians, really second Corinthians, or second Corinthians, really third Corinthians. Um, We've just lost the first letter, right? We Or it was not preserved. You know, there, there's various theories on that. Some think, you know, that maybe it's kind of embedded into, um, you know, uh, you know, one of the letters, but yeah, it, it, we we don't have it. I, I would say, you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he warns them about fornication. We'll talk about that in chapter 5. But um, yeah, he writes this letter. And there's other letters of Paul, of course, that he refers to that we no longer have. There's an earlier letter to the church at Ephesus. There's an epistle of the church at Laodicea that mentions in, in Colossians. We don't have these. In fact, I probably suspect there are a number of letters that Paul wrote that we no longer have. And so um as Paul's writing to this community, and what we see here, right, he writes to them, you know, at least three times. But one of the reasons why he, I think he writes so much is there's some real challenges going on in Corinth. Um, lots of problems in this branch. And what's interesting is when you read this letter, is when you get down and you look at the first verse, right, and you're in 1 Corinthians, and you get down to uh, verse um, uh, 11. I'll kind of start maybe here to kind of alert your readers to this is that Paul, um, it's pretty clear when you read verse 11, he says, right, quote, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, there are quarrels among you, or by the house of Chloe. Um, it's pretty clear that there are, you know, house churches that are meeting that Paul establishes. And in this clay case, there is a church who, you know, house church, and probably they're, you know, connected. That's yeah, reached but, but maybe define Paul. house church for us. You bet. That's a great uh Great question. You know, early Christians, when you read Paul's letters, it's clear that when Christians go out and begin to evangelize, they don't establish a community, then say, okay, let's go now build a purpose-built church, you know, on the corner uh, somewhere in a city, that uh, for many decades, probably even well over a century, early Christians are meeting in people's homes. Right. And so people would go and meet there. This is kind of the story what you saw in um, Acts uh, 16 in Philippi, a woman called Lydia, that Paul kind of sets up a base there from which she evangelized out of her home, it's pretty clear that the early church in Philippi is meeting in this woman's home. And so um, you have these early house churches. And so in this case, there's some people who are meeting in the house of Chloe. It's, it's a female name. Um, and it could have been, you know, a large group. When I mean large group, you know, maybe, uh, you know, somewhere maybe 40 or 50 people, uh, maybe in a house church, that would probably be on the larger side. But they've written to Paul because there's some problems. And some of these maybe are fairly minor, but some are actually quite significant problems of, you know, immorality, um, people, you know, arguing with one another, um, people suing each other in court, um, even case some people even denying the resurrection, right? Some fundamental uh, aspects of uh, the gospel. And so they write to Paul for some clarification. Paul then receives this letter. And I really wish we had that letter that was written to him because it would be kind of yeah. clear, okay, here's what's being asked. And now Paul's responding to that. He will occasionally quote from that letter like he does at the begin, beginning of chapter 7 um, and address some of these issues. And one of the things we find in 1 Corinthians is, is there are some real problems going on that Paul more or less hears about problems and begins addressing them and kind of goes through and gives some counsel and in some cases some quite um, severe censure and rebuke to some people um, when he writes this letter. Um yeah. And, and that always look, gets tricky, we should say, because you're you're always he's relying on reports that he's hearing rather than being there himself. 
And so he's not witnessing it firsthand. He's hearing it secondhand, and that's always tricky, right? But uh, but he certainly tr- seems to trust Chloe and uh, the information she's giving him. Yeah, you know, this is, and this is for a lot of Paul's letters, right? He will write to people, and people bring news, right? Timothy, um, you know, Epaphroditus and Philippi, you know, just kind of ancient communication. Um, people have to come and report to Paul what's going on in this case, it appears there's some significant problems. And so Paul will have to address these in a pretty substantial way uh, for much of this letter. Um, And what's interesting, if you read 2 Corinthians, Paul will talk at the beginning of that letter, how he wrote this first letter in tears, that he said, I had to write some really, really hard things to you. But he said, I had to do it because you were in serious need of correction and repentance. And so Paul doesn't do this lightly, as we learned from uh, 2 Corinthians. Yeah, it kind of reminds you of Jacob when he uh, has to address people in the Book of Mormon in the in that sermon in the temple. And he said, you know, I'd really rather talk about something else. This is not uh, what I want to do, but with heavy heart, I do it because it needs to be done. Yeah, and this is with Paul. You know, he talked about weeping with tears. And one of the things in 2 Corinthians, he says, I was so happy that after I wrote this first letter, and you know, it's translated in the King James, that you were moved to, quote, godly sorrow. That many of you weren't just, you know, upset and sad because I called you out because you really felt you had offended God in some of your activities and behaviors. And and so I think Paul would much prefer to talk about other, you know, other things going on in the branch, but it's kind of compelled to talk about uh, some of these really explicit matters at times um, and, and exhort people to change and repent um, here in this letter. But just a, a quick note before we kind of just jump in, I'm just going to say about Corinth. You know, you have this city of Corinth. Um, you know, it's a Greek city. Um, it comes basically um, kind of this Roman city. Rome takes it over in about 146 uh, BC. But one of the things we know about Corinth is that it's known in antiquity. It's a port city, and it's known for having a very immoral atmosphere, um, even by ancient standards. Um, there's a uh-huh. temple to Aphrodite there at Corinth, which is the goddess of love. It's a certain kind of love, kind of an erotic love. Uh, there's you know brothels in the city. In fact, there's even a proverb that's reported by a Greek geographer that says, "quote Not for every sailor is a trip to Corinth." Unquote, because they, a lot of people sp- you know squander their money there in riotous living. And so, it's not then entirely surprising when Paul writes this letter. One of the issues that comes up, especially in the chapters we'll be looking at, has to do a lot with the the notions in Greek. It's a Greek word that keeps coming up. It's the Greek word porneia, but of course, this is the Greek word for fornication or sexual immorality. It's right. a big problem in this letter, and this may be explained in part from some of the context of what's going on in the wider city, and some members right, have been caught up um, in that. And so this will be, a, in fact, this was first letters about we've lost. It's all about, at least what we're told in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, it was about not companying with people who are fornicators or those involved in porneia. Hmm. And so it's a, a rather serious um, issue that Paul um, addresses uh, in that first letter. So in some ways, it's just a difficult environment to be from uh, because the the culture there is so lewd. We could say that uh, it's it's these members are finding it difficult not to have that influence them the way they think and what they do. Yeah, you know, it's definitely ha- is is having an impact um, upon them. And I think something too that we're seeing in this letter is. When you think about these communities, right, these early Christian communities that Paul's founding, these are all first-generation members. And Paul talks about, you know, their former life, 
right? In the former life, he'll say this in 1 Corinthians you know, 6, says, you know, a lot of people, he said, you are caught up in these things, right? With immorality and all kinds of things. He said, you're now a different creature. He says, act differently. Don't go back to your old life. You know, be this now new creature um, in Christ. And so I, I think we're seeing here some people kind of slipping back into their old, you know, habits. But th there's that beautiful passage. It's where he gives us kind of litany of problems that are going on in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. But he says, don't forget now, right? You've been now washed. You've been cleansed. You've been now made holy and you're justified through Christ. And, and I think there's a great lesson in that. We'll talk about that in more detail when we get to chapter 6. But I, I think for our day is that no matter what you've done, where you've come from, your old self, that you can always become a quote-unquote new creature. And I think that's a really uh, touching message that Paul's trying to exhort these people to, is to kind of move beyond who they were and really become real sons and daughters of God. It really is his heart's desire um, in this letter for that. Uh, that's great. Good. Thank you. So maybe with that being said, let's let's kind of jump into uh, the letter, right? So Paul, just, mm -hmm. you know, kind of begins the letter, right? Pretty standard, the first three uh, verses in chapter one, and then really from four to nine in chapter one, you have what's called an epistolary thanksgiving, which are very common in Paul's letters, where he more or less tells the recipients of the letter, in this case, the members of Corinth, that he's been praying for them, that he's grateful for them. And then the letter really, you know, kind of opens up in uh, verse 10. And it opens up, with Paul, right, claiming that he has this report now from the House of Chloe, and that he starts off by hearing about divisions. And yeah. he's really concerned there's divisions among this branch. And, and in fact, this issue of divisions, um, one of the Greek words used for divisions is heresies, right? Um, here, I, I don't see it so much as doctrinal divisions, but divisions um, in what people are doing, and also in some allegiances that people um, have. And right. this kind of, you learn about these early um, divisions here in this branch. You're learning how new these members are because Paul says, I hear that you're kind of, you know, you know, squabbling uh, with each other over who actually baptized you. Some say you're of Paul, some say you're of Apollos, some say you're of Cephas. And for us, we kind of look at this and think of this as really like, you know, puerile, right? What, what are these people um, doing, right? Who cares who baptized you? But it's causing some problems. And what Paul does here, and it's really nice, he says, you know, you weren't baptized in Paul's name or in Apollos's name or in Cephas's name. You were baptized in the name of Christ. And he's trying to remind them of this unity that they ought to have in Christ. And there's a real problem with this division, right? He'll bring it up again in chapter 11. And Paul gives a great analogy for unity. We won't get to here, but in chapter 12 about the body, how the body is one body with all kind of different members who perform very different functions, whether you're the eyes or the mouth or the hands, um, but yet they're all for one purpose, uh, for building each other up. And so this is how Paul begins, right? Kind of, you know, addressing this issue of disunity in the church. And where this then goes to, and there's something that probably ought to say something about, because it's quite important, where as you get down into, um, you know, verse uh, 17, really through the end of this uh, chapter, um, Paul begins warning about wisdom, and, and this may seem a little bit uh, unusual because we often think, you know, wisdom's a good thing, right? You read about you know, the acquisition of wisdom in Proverbs and elsewhere, but Paul really warns about wisdom and how this wisdom that people might learn will run totally, you know, counter to the gospel that he's been teaching. Yeah, and you know, the wisdom that he's talking about here. It's, you know, if you read in the Greek, he uses this word Sophia. This is the Greek word for wisdom, 
but it's very clear he's thinking about philosophia or right philosophy. There are philosophies out there in his day um, that are running counter to what Paul had taught. And so people are kind of getting caught up in this wisdom of the world. Yeah. You know, or we might even use the phrase sophistry um, oh, yes. to capture that, right? Uh, very much so. And he gives this warning about not being caught up in this sophistry or wisdom of the world, but to rely on the wisdom of God. And, and he kind of, you know, does this little, you know, um, rhetorical move where he says, you know, the foolishness of God is wiser than, you know, the wisest person. Yeah. And, and what seems to be the case here is you kind of get down into verse, um, really, you know, around, you know, 22, 23, he says, you know, when we start teaching about this crucified man, Christ, and the resurrection, he says to the Jews, this is, you know, a stumbling block. It's what the King James has here. Literally, the Greek word is a scandal. And to the Greeks, this is total foolishness. Because the conventional wisdom of the day, of course, in much of Greek philosophy, you know, um, is, you know, when you're dead, you're dead. And there's certainly no physical afterlife. And so to hear now about some corporeal afterlife uh, of Christ coming back to life, a lot of Greeks regard this as foolishness. And it's clear the Corinthians are kind of struggling with this. Um, in fact, some of them begin even... You know, Paul addresses this in chapter 15. Some are even denying the resurrection. Paul will then address that um, there. But Paul talks about, you know, putting your trust first and foremost, right, in the wisdom of God. And I think there's a great lesson in there. Um, when you see what Paul is saying here, you know, I think of what do you have in the Book of Mormon with Jacob, right? It's good to be learned if you hearken unto the counsels of God. Yeah. And I think there's a challenge, you know, whether you're in first century Corinth, or, you know, 21st century, about sometime, right, getting caught up in the sophistry or the quote-unquote wisdom of the day, and forgetting that God's wisdom is really overall. Uh, and, I, in fact, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you, you go jump right in. I was going to say, I think this is one of the greatest issues we are facing today, and it's uh, something that Paul brings up a number of times. John's going to talk about it in the book of Revelation and so on, but the this notion that we are far too easily influenced by the world, and then we often are trying to kind of integrate the gospel uh, and the world's philosophies uh, and just mix them together and come up with some kind of hybrid thing. And we're not conscious that that's what we're doing, but it is what we're doing. The world puts so much pressure on us, and we listen to it so much, whether it be through the music or movies or uh, podcasts or whatever it is. Uh, social media, we listen to the world and that it influences the way we think. And then we start to understand the gospel differently because the world is teaching us how to filter the gospel rather than we have the gospel teach us how to filter what we hear from the world. And then we get all sorts of people who will say, well, the prophets have this wrong or, well, no, you guys are haters because of this or uh, something along those lines because we have listened to the philosophies of the world far, far too much. And our task is to learn to filter those through the gospel rather than the gospel through the ideas and thoughts of the world. I think that's a great point. You know, one of the things that he says here in verse 21, he says, you know, said that the world through wisdom tried to understand God. However, it didn't actually know God through its wisdom. It never actually got it there. And, you know, I think it's a revelation here, right? You really want to yeah. know you got to have revelation. It's not to diminish right? Cognitive abilities to go and to think and to learn and all that. Right. But but I think that's a, a great point, is that you look at things th first through the gospel. That That is your 
major filter. And Paul's addressing saying, you know, yes, this may seem like foolishness, what I've been teaching you, right, to the world. He says, this is, you know, the reality. This is the truth of God, how he brought about his work of salvation. Um, and, and so I think there's a great, great lesson in there. And, and you know, what, what Paul does after, you know, kind of reiterating this, he says, you know, when I came to you, and this is now getting in chapter two, he said, all I taught you was Jesus and him crucified. And one of the things he does there is he says, and I think what he's trying to do is you know, that if people have been struggling, right, probably bring in some of the ideas of the Greek and Roman world and maybe doubting some things Paul yeah. taught them. But he says, when I was with you, he says, and this is, I think, another great lesson is, well, how do you really know, right? And he says, you felt the power. You felt the power of Christ. You felt the spirit. And so for much of chapter two, he tries to remind them saying, this is how you felt when I was there. And he talks about the spirit and feeling that power. And the assurance of God, really knowing, right? How do you yeah. know what you know? And, and so it's this great lesson about turning to the Spirit. And then, of course, you have that description, which everyone knows, right? About, you know, the natural person does not discern the same things of the Spirit because they are foolishness to him. He brings yeah. this up kind of as the, you know, um, uh, the capsule and all this saying, right? You got to be spiritually discerning. It says you felt the Spirit when I was there and kind of like what's changed. Yeah. And I think that that line is so important. We, we need to expect that those who have not had the, the spiritual conversion and revelation that we've had will think that what we are teaching is foolishness because they're not capable of understanding it. The world is not capable of understanding things of God by natural reasoning and natural uh, understanding. They're only understood by God. And that's such a key thing. We, we just we've got to expect it, be ready for it and take it in stride. We do. And that's why I think Paul's just trying to say, you know, remember those spiritual experiences you had, the power you felt. And, you know, Paul does this really interesting thing. He says, you know, when I came to you, as he kind of starts talking about, right, remember the spirit. He says, I didn't come with great words of enticing. I wasn't trying to convince you of this. He said, I just basically taught you in power and in the spirit. And it's interesting, right? You think in the Greek world that Paul is living in, right? When you want to persuade somebody, there's various ways you can do this. You can do this through, quote unquote, you know, rational arguments or, or logic or, you know, what's called pathos in Greek, appeal to emotion or ethos, yeah. right? Appeal to customs. And Paul's saying, I didn't do any of this. I just taught in power and I appealed to the spirit. And he says, because if I tried to do it in any other way, if, you know, the rationale of the day changes, right? Or to go back to what you said, right? If the quote unquote wisdom of the world changes, then your whole testimony changes. Yes. Where if it's rooted in the gospel first, it's not going to change. It will be a sure foundation. And so I think it's really remarkable what he's doing. I think there's a great lesson again, going back to your power that you feel in God and the spiritual experiences that you have. And I, as time goes on, I'm more and more convinced that, that some of the most important things we can do is uh, either write down or in some way record when we have those experiences so that we can remember them because often we forget that we've had them and and we struggle and i think that's true not just for us but maybe especially for our children if we can help our children record when they felt the spirit when they've been had witness born to them then later when they're struggling if we can use those things they've recorded to help bring those feelings back they can withstand these this mocking of the world, right? The people in the great and spacious building pointing their fingers. Uh, it's it's hard to withstand that when you can't remember uh, the revelations that you had. It's a lot easier when you can. Yes, uh, I think you know just writing down, right? It's so important. You, know, you think book more just record keeping. When yeah. you don't have records, look what happens. Yeah, 
Um, and you know, and with you know, personal uh records here. And so Paul just really admonishes the people, right, to remember what they felt when he was there. And I, I think there's a great lesson in that. And, and something, and here I'll just kind of kind of go through quickly with kind of three and four, because in three and four, he picks back up this issue of division among them, that he's really concerned about this. One of the things he does say um, here is, is he talks about the church, right? Saying, you know, don't have these divisions. He says, he talks about the temple of God in two in two ways here in 1 Corinthians. And here in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, he talked about the temple of God saying, right, you're the temple of God. Here he means the church. And he says, and you need to have the spirit needs to dwell in you. Yeah. And so he's really concerned about that, right? Pick up the spirit. Later on in six, he'll say, your body's a temple and you need the spirit. So treat your body appropriately. The spirit can be with you. Yeah. Um, and, and this kind of picks up, right? Does, you know, what can we do here? At least initially he's saying as a church, you got to have the spirit with you. Don't have these divisions. You're going to lose the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and that's what uh, I mean. God says, if you're not one, you're not of me. Contention is not not of me, but is of the devil. Right? The, those divisions. President Nelson's certainly been trying to teach us this. Uh, in, in fact, my impression of what uh, President Nelson he keeps teaching us ways to move forward by telling us we need to let God prevail in our lives. This is where we seek for peace. How do you hear Him? But twice he said to say, okay, there's something that's holding you back, and each time it's been contention, right? Uh, or we could say divisions, this kind of a thing. So I think. That's really important. And, and maybe I can bring up another point and ask your opinion on this. Um, Paul, as you said, he keeps bringing up this idea of either the church being the temple or each of us individually being the temple. And I know many Christians will say, well, that's because uh, the idea of needing a temple was done, right? With the law of Moses ending, they didn't need the temple of Herod or temple of Solomon. They didn't need a temple like that anymore. There's no more temple at all. And uh, so they use Paul's teachings about the church and our bodies being a temple to say we don't need temples, rituals, that kind of thing. Some sects will say rituals. Others are very steeped in ritual, but temple being done. Whereas what I think Paul is doing is saying, OK, we all understand the temple and that the temple signifies God's presence, that that's where God comes to dwell. So let's use that analogy that we know and are sure of and compare it to the church where we want God's presence or compare it to me as an individual. I want God's presence. And so I want to be like the temple in that God can dwell in me like he dwelt in the temple. So that's the way I take what Paul's doing as opposed to how many of our Christian cousins take that. I, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think he was the temple because that's the very thing, right? That, um, you know, this is the expectation, the spirit of God as at the temple. Now, even if there's our Gentiles large, it seems that Paul's kind of, you know, made them aware, you know, uh, of this. And so I think he uses temple because its expectation is this is where the spirit is. Um, well, and they and have their own temples. Paul, they still have that idea. Oh, yeah. They have temples in, in Corinth, you know, they have temples, you know, all, all over the place um, there. And I think Paul deliberately uses this word just because, right, this is how he how traditionally understood. And in no way is Paul, you know, in these writings anti-temple no so he, he just he uses a temple as a positive example like this is what the spirit is and now you should be a temple right in your congregation and your body should be a temple exactly exactly so that the spirit of god uh may uh dwell um there so so this is kind of right those first four chapters now when you get into chapter five what paul begins to do now is kind of and you can almost follow this now chapter by chapter um, in uh, the rest of 1 Corinthians, is he deals with different issues. 
And, and so when he hit chapter five, after kind of, you know, reminding them, right, of their spiritual conversion, the power, right, warning about divisions, he starts off by dealing with this big issue of sexual immorality. And so, you know, it starts off in, you know, verse one, right, it's reported commonly there is fornication among you. So he's now warning about this fornication, right, this pornea. But in this case, what he says is the kind of for fornication that I've heard that's been going on, even the Gentiles don't do this, right? Where kind of everything, it seems, you know, in, in large part in the larger Greco-Roman world, a lot was just, you know, it was fairly wide open what people would do, you know, when it came to, you know, sexual immorality. But Paul said, what's going on in your branch, I've heard, even is surpassing what's going on there. And what you're hearing about here is Paul is addressing a case of what seems to be incest. Yeah, And so it's come to, you know, his attention right at the end of verse one, that one should have his father's wife. And so um, it appears that some member of the church um, is having an incestuous relationship, right, with his quote unquote father's wife. I guess that could be his actual mother or the Greek could be actually his stepmother. Yeah. In any case, Paul is saying, right, this is clearly um, an issue of right sexual immorality. And so what Paul does is he says, right, about this person saying, this one, you know, quote, should be delivered to Satan, unquote. You know, kind of, you know, the note says they're excommunicated or remove this person from your midst. Paul's pretty clear on this. And, you know, some people might wonder, why is Paul being so heavy handed with this person? Isn't he allowing this person any kind of repentance? Um, well, what you see there in these verses leading up to this is the person that's involved in this is actually boasting about what they're doing. Hmm. And so it's pretty clear there's no sign of humility. In fact, it's the very opposite. So Paul says, remove this person from their, your midst, because he says, um, you know, he talks about, in this case, says, you know, it's only a little bit of, right, you know, leaven, right, kind of leavens a whole lump. A little bit of yeast, you know, cause every, you know, thing to rise. And Paul's concerned because many members of this branch don't appear very strong, at least morally, that this will lead to others involved, getting involved in similar kind of activities. Right. So, so this he, is really for the protection of others. And that's one of the reasons for uh, membership councils is uh, to protect others so that they don't think, oh, well, the church thinks this is fine. So then I can do this. Uh, if the person isn't willing to change and if everyone uh, sees that this is going on, it has to be made clear. We don't condone this. This is spiritually destructive so that we don't have other people following. Yeah, and this this really worries Paul, that very issue. Because he even says, he says, don't you remember, this is verse 9, I already told you another letter not to company with fornicators. And, and so this is a matter of, I think, protecting the church, protecting others. And, and there's no doubt, right, when you read the rest of Paul's letter, that if this person were to, you know, repent, they would certainly be welcomed back into the congregation. But in this case, they're not, they're actually bragging about their actions. And so Paul says, you really need to remove this person. Um, from uh, your midst. And so you can see right from the start, right, kind of this problem of immorality that is going on in Paul's reference to a previous letter that he um, uh, had written uh, there. And, and this then leads to a discussion then in uh, the beginning of chapter six is that he is learned also that people are now suing each other in courts of law. And this is causing all kinds of problems in the branch. And now, we don't know what exactly is the nature, why people are taking each other to court, right? I don't really, we don't know this is, you know, a civil matter, a criminal matter, whatever it seems to be, right? Again, I wish we had this letter of close, so we could do some more details on this. 
Paul feels that it's wholly inappropriate to do so and says, in fact, that members should have been able to work this thing out without recourse to the courts. And so he really, you know, gets after the Corinthians uh, for this. And, and, you know, he says, in fact, he says, you're going to be the judges of the world and that you can't, you know, judge and arbitrate one another in these, what appears to, Paul says, very, rather trifling matters. And so Paul's rather, you know, frustrated the members and admonishes them, right, to work this out amongst themselves that are going to law courts. And then he says something really interesting. He says in verse 7, 8, he says, you know what? Sometimes it's better, let's say you have been wronged, just to turn the other cheek and to forgive and move forward. And I, I think that's sometimes maybe really hard, a hard thing to do. When you have genuinely been wronged by someone, and Paul says, you know what? Some of you just need to do this and move forward. Um, yeah, and that is tough. So, I mean, it seems to me he's telling us the way Joseph Smith would have put it or take, put it in Revelation received by Joseph Smith is that when there's a problem, take the brother alone, right, or sister. But but uh, instead of making this a big public thing, see what you can work out. Um, and hopefully things can work out. And in some cases, even if they don't, you just need to move on. Um, you know, in some cases, like I can imagine cases where, well, no, that I need to protect this child of mine. So we're going to have to take steps to keep them away from someone that's unsafe or something along those lines. But there are a lot of things where you can just say, okay, I'll take this loss and move on rather than have uh, the bitterness of soul that will happen as if I don't move on. Yeah, and I think in this case, Paul says, you know, better in, in some of these cases to forgive and forget. Yeah. Um, so I think there's some good counsel, you know, kind of picking up what you have in, you know, Matthew, you know, 540 about turning uh, the other cheek. And then what Paul does here, you know, the really important verses that um, really touching, right? Verses 9 through 11 here in chapter 6, where Paul, right, he's been kind of, you know, calling them out with divisions, right? Issues of fornication, issues of, you know, suing each other in court. Uh, I'm just going to read this to you because it's, it's, it's quite, it's really beautiful as it ends here. It says, know ye not the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, right? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, right? So we're talking about this, uh, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So it kind of gives this litany um, of things. Um, which he includes here also, right, in some very explicit language where, you know, uh, fornication, adulterers, but he also even is quite explicit here with same-sex relations. Um, and so he lays this out. But what he does here is really beautiful then, especially when you get into uh, verse 11. He says this, he says, and such were some of you. So Paul says, look, some of you have done this, right? You, you've had this background. And he says, but you are washed, right? You've been baptized, but you're sanctified, right? You've had the Holy Ghost, but you are justified, right? Through Christ, justified, literally means you are made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And it's really quite touching here. Paul recognizes the challenges that people have, that this is part of their former life. And some are even maybe, you know, moving back into that life. He's saying, you can be a new creature. Yeah. And all of these things can be, right? He's saying, that are offensive to God can be behind you and, and just kind of reminding them on their new life in Christ. And, and for me, it's just really touching, right? No matter yeah. what you, you know, you can move forward and, and you can be made righteous through Christ. And so I just find that really beautiful um, counsel equals here. It is powerful and it's so needed today. I mean, I think he's saying, okay, don't move towards it, 
but don't tear yourself up over what has been in the past. Allow yourself to be cleansed, made new in Christ, and to move forward. And of course, we'll all have times where we slip and slide back, you know, backsliding is the Old Testament term. Uh, and that's what daily repentance is for. Uh, and again, then don't tear yourself up over it. Just know that Christ makes you new and keep moving forward. It's it's so powerful and something that is so needed today. It, it really is. And you, you find, you're trying to remind these people of this in some difficult circumstances um, here. And so I, I, those, those verses really jump out to me, especially um, verse um, 11. Yeah. Now, what this brings us to, right, as we get into this, you know, kind of final uh, chapter in this segment in chapter seven, um, here Paul will return to this issue, right, of sexual intimacy. In fact, in chapter six, after he mentions that, he talks about a member who allegedly had also committed fornication um, with a prostitute. Um, and he condemns that out, outrightly. And then when you get into chapter seven, he then quotes in verse one what they had written to him in this letter. And so I want to kind of pick up with this um, in uh, 1 Corinthians, right? It's uh, 7 uh, verse 1. And, and we'll kind of go from that and kind of go through this chapter because this chapter is a really interesting chapter. And I'll, I'll say more about this here momentarily. So he starts off by this, but it's really connected to, right, what, what you have before. He says, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, and it has colon, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, of course, touch here is really a euphemism for being sexually active. Right. And I bring this up because depending on how you interpret this first verse can impact how you read the chapter. And so one of the questions that's worth asking here is who's actually saying this phrase, quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, unquote. Is this the Corinthians saying this in their letter or is this Paul saying this? And what's interesting is that you find, at least in the history of you know ancient Christianity, a number of Christian commentators later on, when you kind of find the emergence here of kind of like monasticism and celibacy, right. will say, well, Paul's saying this. I'll read this chapter in a way that says Paul's really advocating here for celibacy. And they'll say, look, you know, look what happens, right? When you start being sexually intimate, at least to fornication, all these kinds of problems. And they'll say that even within the bounds of marriage, even later writers will say this, they say, what Paul's advocating here is for a life of celibacy. And in fact, this chapter will be an important proof text for certain Christians for arguing, saying, look, really the highest form of piety is celibacy. Well, Paul's not actually saying that. In fact, he's actually quoting the letter here. He's saying, now concerning basically what you wrote to me, it is good for a man not touch a woman. In fact, the JST actually makes it clear saying the Corinthians are saying this, not Paul. So they're saying, right, it's good not to touch a woman to be sexually active. And this is maybe a bit curious, right? Because you might be thinking that there's too much touching going on. And so maybe, you know, I wonder what's happening here. One way of looking at this is they have these problems. And Paul keeps saying, you know, don't be involved in fornication. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. Some members saying, well, maybe, you know, sexual intimacy is just bad altogether. Yeah, maybe that's so the way Paul, to just avoid uh, avoid problems is to just say, I'm never doing anything. Never doing anything. And and so this is why maybe, you know, he quotes in this way. But it's what Paul does here, right? So so we get in this. So they're saying that. So it's not Paul. And then what you have, right? So you have the next verse, right? Paul says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, right? Or this pornea, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. And then in verse 3, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Now, I know the King James here says due benevolence. Interesting enough, actually, this is a variant, a later variant in the Greek, 
And they seem to be, you know, I actually call it a monastic variant. So some people actually call it because Paul here is not talking about being right benevolent to your spouse. Although I think that's a very good thing to be here. Paul, a better rendering here is basically saying, let the husband render to his wife, I would say something like this, her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife unto the husband. Where Paul's saying, within the bounds of marriage, sexual intimacy is permitted. Paul's being ex ex explicit on this. Um, right. King James misses this because of a variant that gets introduced uh, later on down the road. So Paul said, so, okay. uh, explain what variant is for our audience, if you wouldn't mind. Well, you, what you have here is, you know, our, the, the Greek text underlying the King James is kind of made from later manuscripts, you know, right. early about the 12th century. And we have earlier manuscripts, right? In the last 400 years since the King James has been translated, there have been earlier manuscript finds. And what we find is the King James actually added an extra word in here and made um, the key word here, right? You know, here it says, you know, kind of this, you know, what is due, it made this a participle where this is just actually... Um, here, it's just kind of a noun. Render the spouse what they are ought, i.e. sexually, meaning conjugal rights. Right. So, so, so the earlier manuscripts that we've discovered read that way. And this yes. seems to be uh, what the, the manuscript that the King James translators had inherited was later and had this change in it, is, is what we're saying. And so it's saying that really uh, the earliest manuscripts said, give them what is their due, basically, meaning sexually sexually and so, and so paul being clear saying yes sexual intimacy within the bounds of marriage is okay he, he's making this very clear here in and, these and not even okay he's encouraging it right he's, well he's yeah this he is, actually this is what uh should happen for a husband and for a wife and, and he, he says here now i know verse four you might read this and say what does this mean the wife doesn't have authority of her body or the husband doesn't have authority of his body what he's saying here is he's saying look Look at it this way, right? The husband kind of is, you know, master of his wife's body. And the wife is master of the husband's body. Doesn't mean they have to do whatever you say. He's saying that means you don't have a right now to go and take that body and do those things with your partner with somebody else. Good. So he's saying here this should be confined to a marital relationship. And as you get down to verse 7, right? And it's interesting. He's making a case here with sexual intimacy saying, look, um, you'll be sexually intimate. At times you might not be, but as you'll come back together, you'll be intimate once again. And so Paul recognizes it's actually an important part of marriage. In fact, it's really interesting. I see Paul kind of playing here, kind of marriage counselor a little bit. Yeah. As he does tell, giving people some counsel. But the overarching point here is that, yes, within the bounds of marriage, this is okay and acceptable, right? And, and expected. Yeah. Um, and he's being very delicate, right? He's kind of, you know, he's recognizing here, he's kind of walking here on very delicate ground. That's why he says in verse six, I think he's saying, I'm giving you here now kind of, you know, say, speaking more by kind of, um, this is not a command that he's giving, saying, I'm speaking here really, yeah. you know, kind of, this is my opinion on the matter. And you'll say this a few times in this chapter because he is addressing some sensitive topics. Right. And it's worth noting that, uh, as you said, a number of uh, different Christian groups have taken this to mean, okay, we stay away from sexuality uh, just completely if we're trying to be our holiest selves. That there, there are a number of Christians who take this to mean that uh, it's our Christian duty to provide a wholesome and uh, fulfilling sexual life for our spouse. And so these verses have been taken both ways, uh, but I think that uh, the, the latter is more faithful to the way that uh, it actually reads. Yeah, no, you, Paul, it is here, and it's interesting that when you read 
you know, I won't dwell on this too much, but you read, you know, verse five carefully, right? Some people say, well, you know, this idea of, you know, uh, only, you know, intimacy, right, for procreation. But it's clear that Paul's not taking that point. No. It's not just saying only for children. It's actually saying within a healthy marriage, this goes on. And it's not simply yeah. for procreation. And so um, I think it's interesting that Paul's just making that point um, here. And going back, main point is, right, within marriage, this is okay. And then, you know, as Paul goes on here, right, he's kind of talking to people in marriage, okay, and then what you have now is Paul now begins to talk, right, to some uh, different groups here. And so, you know, you get into, you know, verses, you know, kind of 8 through 16. He's now yeah, speaking. Or even 7. 7 to me is one that's a little bit tricky as well. But anyway, sorry, keep going. Well, yeah, you know, he says, he. I wish that all men, you know, were as myself. Um, and when you read this, right, you read this in the context here. Um, when you get down to 8, he says, you know, um, it is good for them if they abide even as I. We're talking here to the unmarried and widows. And if right. you read this, it's pretty clear that Paul's in an, he considers himself in unmarried state at this point. Right. Um, and again, we can speculate, um, you know, was Paul married, you know, or, or was he unmarried at this point? Was, you know, is he a widower? Yeah. Um, all had he never gotten married? Yeah. Had never got married. You know, I'm kind of, and there's been a lot of speculation. Um, there's no definitive answer on this. I, I'm of the opinion, um, that at some point Paul was married. I think, you know, he says a lot here about marriage. Yeah. Um, there's, some, I think, some hints here and there in the letters. Again, that, nothing I'd say is definitive, but certainly. But it would be unusual for a, a Pharisee of a reasonable age to be unmarried. It was most common for Jews to get married uh, and have families. That was an important thing uh, for them. So that would be uncommon. It would be uncommon, uh, for sure. You know, when you think about, you know, Judaism historically, right, what's the first commandment? Multiply and fill the earth. Yeah. Right? And so they, they take this very seriously. And so I think Paul, who, who talks about, right, following the law in every way, um, would certainly, um, you would expect a Pharisee to do this with a great zeal to have been married. And, yeah. and so perhaps is, you know, in an unmarried state at this point, right, perhaps is a widower, which is not impossible. It's interesting, some early Christian writers um, who comment on uh, Philippians chapter 4 talk about Paul basically being effectively unmarried, he's always traveling, and his wife was actually left in Philippi, which is kind of interesting, maybe a case, uh, may not be. Um, yeah. But yeah, at least when he writes this letter, he considers himself in an unmarried um, state, whether that is, you know, literally unmarried, or just basically he's never around um, with his uh, wife, but, but starts giving now some counsel to others. And what what I would say here, and let so, me maybe, but, but maybe I can just ask you then, what, what do you make of this? Because I know this is a question a lot of people have. What do you make of this part where he says, "I wish that everyone were like myself," and then he talks about this unmarried state, and a lot of people take that to mean Paul is saying, "Yeah, I think no one should be married." Well, you know, it's interesting here because you know he says here he says, "I speak to the unmarried and the widows." Right? You have the Greek word here is this, you know, um, agamos. Think of the word, you know, gamos in Greek means married, wherever like monogamy. Um, and, and I wonder here if it's not better translated as, I say, therefore, to the widowers and the widows. Mm. In fact, here, that, that may be the case here. Because you have these pairs, husband and wife, you know, widowers and widows may be there. Right. It was good for them if they abide even as I, um, I, in this unmarried state. But if they cannot, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, I think you read to say, well, Paul, you know, doesn't have a great view of marriage. I, I don't see that. And one of the things I'd say is to kind of maybe just jumping ahead to kind of frame this chapter here for a moment. You know, P 
people are wondering, you know, why does Paul give the advice that he um, gives uh, here? Because, you know, later on he will talk about, right, uh, he says, you know, he says, you know, um, I'm trying to remember the exact uh, verse here, but he more or less says, um, in light of the present distress, right? This is what the King James um, has here. This is um, it's right around uh, verse 25, 26. You know, he says, people basically, uh, he says, you shouldn't go, um, you know, and, uh, you know, you should remain as you are, you know, which he says here earlier um, on to those who are, you know, quote unquote, unmarried and married. And, and a lot of people wondered, well, the traditional understanding of this is that Paul is saying, well, in light of this right present um, distress, a lot of modern translations render this as impending uh, distress or impending, um, you know, uh, trouble or impending crisis. And, and it's typically thought, well, Paul's saying he thinks the end of the world's happening soon and therefore saying don't get married because it's happening so soon. Um, that, that's not a good reading of that, by the way, even though I think that's quite commonly taken that way. What we have the benefit of here, maybe I think as we think about, you know, instead of getting to all the weeds here of, you know, why does he give this exact counsel, is there's a great JST down around verse 29, where he he's giving this counsel, right, to remain as you are. If you're not married, don't get married. If you're married, don't seek to be loosed from marriage. And the counsel is here, the JST makes it clear that he's talking to people who have been called to the ministry, i.e. missionary work. And he's saying those who are in a married state tend to care about the things of the world, where those who aren't in a married state, it's easier to focus on what you're doing. And it's, what's interesting is at a very practical level, we do this today in the church, right? With missionaries, you say, you know, marriage is a great thing. For a time, put that off and put the Lord first and serve the Lord, right, with all your heart, might, mind, and then get married, right? You know, yeah. it's in order to this. And so the JST makes that uh, clear. This is a context. Let's say context is important. You can read this and say, well, gee, Paul's saying you shouldn't be married. Or at best, is a second best to being celibate. But the context is, in the context of those who are going out and serving, remain as you are. If you can't, right? Okay, go and do this. But if you remain as you are, it will be easier to go and serve. Yeah. So don't becomes, get rid of a spouse so that you can go serve. Go serve. But, but if you are not yet married, then go serve and then get married. You go serve. And so the thing is, you know, don't go and do that for the time being. Because in 32 and 35, it's pretty clear. Paul's saying, you know, it's going to be more challenging if you are in a married state and you're out going and serving. And, and just to go back to that verse 26 uh, for um, a moment, right? It, you know, the King James has present distress, but most modern translation uses impending crisis. Um, just a note on this. The, the word, I won't get into all this, but it cannot mean impending. It's a formula that's actually used in Greek regnal formulas. It has to be present. So the King James language is right there. Present something. I actually like the Greek word here is ananke, which actually I think is best rendered as present necessity. In light of the present necessity, i.e. verse 29, missionary labors, remain as you are. Hmm. And I think that is a much better translation. Um, um, I think by introducing this idea of impending crisis, you're introducing stuff to Paul that isn't actually there. It's not even there in the Greek. And so this idea is you've been called to ministry. It will be harder if you go and try to do this in, in your state. So don't seek to change your state. Whether you're married, don't seek to leave. Or if you're, you're unmarried, don't necessarily go and do this. Paul says, if you're going to do it, okay. But he does say it will be a harder thing for you. Mm-hmm. 
And so I, I think when you look at this GST, look at this council here as very, you know, not universal council regarding, you know, marriage for all time, but very contextually specific council given for a reason. And this is why I think it's important with Paul's legislation for to keep context in mind. And, and the JST really makes this clear. Oh, that's very good. And that, that highlights another thing that's very useful for uh, reading all of Scripture, but I think especially as we read Paul's letters, and that is the the how blessed we are to have modern-day revelation, and that the prophets of our dispensation, and especially our current prophets, uh, they help us understand what God expects of us, and then we can read these things in light of that. So we know that marriage and family is an essential and important part of the plan that has been made repeatedly clear by a number of prophets. And that's Latter-day Revelation that then we can use to help us interpret and understand what we're reading in Paul's letters. Uh, what a great blessing. I'm so, so grateful that we have prophets today to help us understand what God wants us to do and that we can understand the rest of Scripture in light of that revealed word. Oh, you know, I, I agree that we, we have this, you know, that understanding, which, um, you know, and we, we can think of, you know, a similar context today where somebody might be given some very specific counsel for a time, right? Yeah. Do this for a time, but here's a larger principle you ought to go and follow. Um, and, and this is really what it, Paul is doing here. And again, what's interesting when Paul does give this counsel, he keeps saying, I'm giving you my opinion. I'm an apostle, but this is my opinion based on the best, you know. Yeah. Council and you know um, thoughts he has at the time. So as you read that chapter seven, historically it's been a very influential chapter, right? In this kind of history of right, you know, celibacy. Um, but with a correct understanding, you're seeing Paul is saying there is a purpose for a timely for the time being. Why maybe you ought to avoid this for the time being because of the ministry, but certainly not a you know a, an eternal principle. Paul is trying to you know preach here um, with this. Good. Very good. Well, and it seems to me that uh, in the end, all of this is aimed at, and I think that the, the Joseph Smith translation you've been highlighting uh, really helps us understand this. All this is aimed at, we need to uh, do things in the service of Christ. Wh whatever we're doing, whether that be we're avoiding fornication, uh, we're not dividing into different groups, or we are uh, having marriages uh, be what they should be, and we're uh, at the appropriate time when we're going forth to, to proselytize, we're not being married, and then we can get married later. All that is because we're changed by Christ, and then we serve Christ rather than the world or ourselves. Yes, and uh, you know, it's interesting, as you kind of think about these chapters, some might get caught up and say, you know, Paul's talking about all these little details, right? Um, about, you know, don't do this or this or the other. But Paul does preface this whole, you know, at the beginning of chapter two again, he says, you know, in three says, Corinthians, I would love to teach you the meat of the gospel, but I'm still just got to give you the milk yeah. because you're still, you know, grappling with these issues. And, you know, as you kind of think about these chapters here, I would encourage your readers to kind of think about, you know, just think of this branch didn't have all these problems. What might have Paul said? And maybe yeah. for our, our own day, right? We sometimes wonder, why does the Lord or the prophets keep saying this thing? Well, there's a good chance because there's a problem with it. Yeah, because we we're not ready to move beyond we're it. We're not ready to move forward. And Paul really, you know, you know, I think if you would have asked Paul, Paul, do you want to address all these things? He's probably like, no, I want to get into some, you know, some more of the, you know, the meat of the gospel. But I'm still stuck on these issues because this is the challenges that they have. Yeah. Um, 
Similarly, again, I think that if you were to ask President Nelson, do you want to uh, give two talks on avoiding contention? He'd probably say, no, I'd really have other things I'd like to talk about, but that seems to be an issue we're struggling with. So I've got to keep talking about that one. Right. Yes, uh, I, I, I think we just need to uh, take these warnings from prophets seriously so we can get to better stuff. And, and, you know, maybe just by, by contrast, it's interesting because when you read uh, Philippians, you know, Paul is in prison, he writes this, and a man called Epaphroditus has come from Philippi to Paul in prison and kind of reports saying, look, this is what's happening. And when you read that letter, it's pretty clear there's not, it doesn't appear to seem to be a lot of problems in the branch. And it's actually a very doctrinally rich letter because he's not dealing with all these things of fornication and people fighting with one another. And I kind of imagine, what if every community would have been like this, how Paul's letters might have been different? Yeah, And so just to get to the listeners, right, I think he's just kind of compelled to address this because of the circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, thank you, Lincoln. This has been uh, really helpful and a blessing for me, uh, both to understand some difficult passages and to to think through some of these uh, greater and important principles. So uh, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, any kind of tying up or summary or anything you'd like to share with us as we wind up? You know, I, I think with Paul, just, you know, kind of re really reading it close, right? Keeping in mind, you know, the context of what he's saying. And I think with Paul, right, is he gets into all these, you know, issues are going on, but Paul keeps on bringing it back to having the spirit and becoming a new creature in Christ. And I, re I really think, you know, as people do this, right, we, we have challenges, but, you know, um, whatever we've done, right, going back to that 1 Corinthians 6, you know, 9 through 11, right, uh, we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified in Christ. And to never forget that, and to so don't get caught up in our whole life, right? Paul says, right, some of you did this stuff, but you can be different people. And I'd say today, you can be different people every day, just moving forward. Yep, and you can keep being washed and made new. So, very good. Well, bless you and thank you, and uh, grateful to understand Paul better and what he's trying to teach us. And I hope that uh, this has been helpful for the audience as well. And if it's been helpful for you, you'll share these principles and ideas, and maybe even this episode with others. So. Uh, we've got all sorts of great writings of Paul ahead of us, so we'll look forward to that. And uh, once again, thank you, Lincoln. Hey, thanks for having me.